So we're here. We have a new fancy microphone, mm-hmm. um, and we're here with Corey Ellison. We're back after like, what would you say, like a six, seven month hiatus, yeah. during which Leslie and I worked on a show. Um, and yeah, Leslie, do you want to explain to Corey what this is? Sure. She came in a little blind. Yeah, <laughs> so. but still, I agreed to do it because I trust the both of you implicitly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this podcast started like probably over a year ago, I was like talking to Liba about my frustrations in audition rooms and just like in general, like the way I was treated. And uh, I was like, it's like this ongoing blog in my head. And we kind of thought about doing that. And then I was like, you know what? This isn't a blog. I think this is a podcast. And I want to, I want to make this positive. I want to interview people who will inspire me and inspire other people who are really have like unique creative paths and you know I think we do have a feminist slant that we we have had we've we had David Fierro who's a lovely man we're thinking yeah, we have a, lots of lovely men we have so many lovely <laughs> men in our life who are who are very you know supportive feminist, really. feminist really? yes yeah. Yeah, and I'm just so excited to have you we've interviewed a jazz singer and a novelist and uh, actors actors and yeah, which is you are our first dramaturg. Oh wow, <laughs> and an opera dramaturg at exactly. that, which is a, right. kind of a pretty rare bird still. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so Corey, what does an opera dramaturg do? Well, that's a you know a, a short, simple question with not a short, simple answer. But um, what I, the first thing I would like to put forward is the definition that was given by someone who was a great inspiration to me, and that was Nicholas John, who for um, many years was the dramaturg at the English National Opera. He was one of the pioneering, I mean, really, you'd probably say the pioneering uh, English language opera dramaturg. Um, But what what Nick used to say is, uh, the definition of of an opera dramaturg is the conscience of an opera house. Wow. And, you know, I hesitate to apply that to myself. I mean, I, I say that as something to aspire to. So conscience in the sense of, are these the kinds of stories we should be telling? Or what What do you, I actually am curious how, speci- how well, specifically you feel that word and define it. Well, I feel that, that what it is, um, is in the case of, uh, the standard operatic repertory, which of course forms a large part of what opera companies do, and even also rediscovering lesser-known um, past operas, which has begun to be done quite a bit since uh, in the you know the post World War II period. Um, it's it has to do a lot with really understanding the works and their creators and the milieu during which they're created um, so as to be as true to the text as possible. And by text, mm-hmm. of course, I mean not only the, the uh, you know, the verbal text, but the musical text. Mm-hmm. And with the composer and librettist most often uh, dead and not there to <laughs> explain themselves or defend themselves, to really kind of be an advocate for um, the composer and librettist and their vision. Mm-hmm. And so that obviously takes a lot of research and a certain kind of 
experience and skill, I believe, you know, because I think you have to ideally have a very broad knowledge of the opera repertory to, to understand where a particular opera fits in, how it's similar to or different from other things, how it was affected by the socioeconomic political forces of its time and so on. Um, so there's that, and that sort of being a conscience uh, breaks out into a number of different areas for a dramaturg in a practical sense. Um, one is, of course, obviously publications. We were talking about mm -hmm. uh, about Nick John editing not only those wonderful ENO guides, but the, the very beautiful house programs that mm -hmm. ENO did and still mm -hmm. does. Um, and house programs, thinking of them not so much as like coffee table material, but mm -hmm. something that's going to really help the audience see that show. Yeah, um, I'm super conscious of that now. When I go to a show, and now it's really popular frequently to not give you the playbill until the end. Oh, is that right? But a lot of theater shows I go to, they won't give it to you till the end. They did that for um, the show with the butterflies at Signature, and they did that for uh, Small Mouth Sounds. They don't give it to you till after. Interesting. Because okay. when I go to a show and I'm given a program, I feel like it's totally my right. It's mm -hmm. fair game for me to be looking at the program mm -hmm. because... They've given it to me. There's right. character stuff. There's mm -hmm. a, a, a like Jerusalem. Mark Rylance wrote a note in yeah. the program mm -hmm. about the Saint Peter and the search for the dragon and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So I actually think curating the program is super. And, and you can tell when it's just a program when they right. don't care. Yeah. And I'm flipping through it during the show, and I'm like, well, you didn't need to give me this except mm -hmm. for to tell me who's playing who. Yeah. So it is. I think it's yeah. really interesting to curate, especially in an opera that's so long. Yes. I always look at program right there are moments where it ebbs and flows and I'm like what's what's happening what else have they done yeah you know I think here in, in this country uh, at a lot of the major performing arts centers like Lincoln Center I think the program book has sort of devolved into basically a vehicle for paid yes. advertisement yes. and mm -hmm. for donor credits, mm -hmm. which in some cases, as, as with the Metropolitan Opera, are pages and pages right. and pages and good for them. But, <laughs> um, you know, the kind of sort of festival-style programs mm -hmm. um, that some uh, American opera festivals do, like Glimmerglass and Santa Fe and so on, the big, you know, sort of, large format, uh, full color, you know, nicely printed and so on and mm -hmm. so forth and thoughtfully illustrated and curated. Um, and that's one of the things I really love to do. I, I, I do that at Blindborn currently. Mm -hmm. um, to really, you know, think about for each individual piece, what is going to be helpful to the audience is going to be different. They don't necessarily have to, if you're doing Bohem mm -hmm. or Carmen, you, you don't have to be as, you know, a lot of yeah. people will mm -hmm. know that even if they're not opera goers, they will have heard of it. They kind of get, you know, it's their popular styles. But if you're doing an off the beaten path work or, you know, something like Wozzeck or Lulu, mm -hmm. which is not so off the beaten path anymore, but, it's, you know, you want to provide a lot of context. And yeah. that kind of thing, that sort of program, I think, is meant to be consumed in advance. Very mm -hmm. often, 
subscribers are sent that in advance and oh, so on. Okay. So that's kind of a, a different function, yeah. you know. And, and, and the programs that at English National Opera and Covent mm -hmm. Garden and many of the European houses do a separate uh, program for each piece of repertory, but it's along those lines with a lot of articles thoughtfully mm -hmm. covering different aspects and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. It breaks out into that. It breaks out into curating outreach and education programs for adults and, and you know, a lot of different tiers. There's stuff mm -hmm. for, you know, school kids, high school kids, college, and, and what's been more my area of expertise is the adult arena, which mm -hmm. is nowadays kind of uh, also you're aiming at new audiences that you want to attract. I was going to ask, do you consider that one of your main objectives to expand the audience? Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, in the arts nowadays, and I'm sure it's true, you guys have experienced this in theater as well, uh, certainly when you're dealing with classic theater, mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, the gaps in art education, mm -hmm. arts education are... Mm -hmm really making themselves felt uh, more and more keenly. And, you know, I'm sure that any sort of uh, classic rep theater um, mm -hmm. really has to make much more of a case these days for Shakespeare or Chekhov or, you know, um, Ibsen, whatever, yeah. uh, just as, as opera companies um, need to uh, make a case, you know, why should um, you know, young people or people who have never seen operas before be interested. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of reasons, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, <laughs> to be interested. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, it, it's a question of, you know, people use this phrase that drives me crazy, which is, is, you know, it? in the industry, they say, well, we have to make opera accessible. Well, you know, I just feel like if you're in this industry, and you don't believe that opera is accessible, there's something really wrong. Yeah. So, um, to me, well, accessibility, now, hold yeah. Hold on, okay. So, I am obviously very, I go to a lot of opera. Mm -hmm. I am friends with many opera singers. It's just part of my social circle and my social world now because of the way my personal life is. But, I mean, I, I don't think... I have a lot of actor friends, like people who are artists and in the industry, mm -hmm. who if they see the wrong opera first, yep. I think it's I think it's deeply inaccessible, and I Absolutely. think it gives opera a bad name. Yes, so I, I think agree. It's, I, I'm I'm curious but it's the same I with, don't think it's if inherently you see bad Shakespeare. It's the I same, agree, right? and I think Shakespeare has been put on a pedestal uh -huh. in a way that pe people feel comfortable, like giving opera a lot more flack than they feel comfortable. Like, people will sit through bad Shakespeare all the time and be like, <laughs> and be like oh, I, I don't know, it. it was fine. Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's okay. And you're like, it's Shakespeare. And I'm I like, couldn't it was under, awful. I couldn't understand it. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> people do that with Shakespeare all the time. And I'm like, you didn't understand it because it was a bad production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think, I do think opera gets more flack in the sense that people go and after 30 minutes, they're like, well, I don't get it. I have to read the subtitles. I don't understand this music. I can't hum along with it. Mm. Screw this. Right. Um, it's much more fashionable to sort of dump on opera, to make mm, fun yes. of it. And, you know, it, it's sort mm. of been, uh, you know, an object of, of ridicule in, in certain but circles for a very long time. Here's my thing about opera. 
So I think there are different kinds of art in this world, and all of it is valuable, but certain kinds of art is like Oreos. Like, <laughs> you can eat them anywhere. They're vegan, weirdly enough. Right. Like, pretty much anyone can eat Oreos. Almost everyone likes Oreos. Poutine. Sure, La Boheme. <laughs> um, like, Butterfly, uh, right. Uh, butterfly. Uh, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think, what are the, pl- like, Hamilton is Oreos, uh-huh. right? Everyone eats it. Everyone's cool with it. And then there's stuff like ice cream, where it has to be in the freezer. You have to eat it in the right way. Like, uh-huh. you kind of want the flavor that you want. And to me, opera, Shakespeare, that's, that's like ice cream. It's very hard to make uh-huh. right. Like, you can't just mm. whip up ice cream. You have to have yeah. a machine, or you have to know exactly how to make it, and, and you it have has to, a it takes a while, life, right? it has a limited shelf life, and each time you do it, it has to be new. Right. You can't just leave ice cream out. Right. So in that and then sense, you've got your soufflés, which mm, is even, yes. even harder. <laughs> but in that right. sense, I think opera, Shakespeare, mm-hmm. Chekhov are not Oreo art. They're ice cream art. So mm-hmm. they are, don't you think, mm-hmm. inherently slightly less accessible? Well, I don't think ice cream is less accessible. I mean, if you if we want to extend the metaphor sure. there, I mean, I think ice cream is just as yummy and, and desirable. But and, it's harder to make, and you yeah. have to enjoy it under specific circumstances. Well, I, I can I can grok the part about it being harder to make. Cool. Um, about enjoying it under specific circumstances, I'm not so sure because I mean, there, for instance, uh, there's the one of the new young companies here in New York, uh, opera companies, is the Loft Opera. Yeah. Um, where, you know, you basically, you go to a warehouse and sit for three hours or however long it is on uh, backless benches, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you can drink beer while you're watching the opera. So what do you think about that? I think that's... Are they trying to turn it into a milkshake? <laughs> <laughs> no. I think what Loft Opera is is trying to do is um, bring the performance experience closer to something that younger audiences are more comfortable with, Mm -hmm. you know, sitting in in a kind of an atmosphere that feels less formal, Mm -hmm. where you can eat and drink while you're watching Mm -hmm. the show, Mm -hmm. and more intimate, certainly, than sitting in a 4,000-seat opera house where... You might be, you know, your seat is on, um, you know, Broadway and the stage is on Amsterdam Avenue. Literally, right. that's what Literally, the Met is. Yeah. You know, huh. There's something, and I don't know a lot about opera. I really don't. I've been to one opera at the Met. Um, and my, but my question is that it seems to me that opera should be experienced on that grand scale. Like, you... you <laughs> That that that's uh-huh. what I I think, and the, this warehouse thing sounds this cool. This is really good, but I've seen a lot of opera, and Leslie has seen almost none. Uh-huh. Okay. So this is a perfect. Yes, it is. It's a great. You, you guys <laughs> yeah. are a great sort of control group um, here. The thing is, I think so many people equate opera with grandness, and I think that's one of the the great cliches about it. And opera is not a monolithic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, yeah, you know, Aida, that's a, that's grand. Turandot, that's grand. Mm-hmm. Les Troyens, you know, things I saw like Macbeth. that. Macbeth. Uh huh. So wow. That, yeah, that was grand. that's a hard first. Well, opera. that's not even. But it was good because I knew the story. Yeah. And, right. You know, right. I had that background. Sure. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Mm. But there are many, many operas that benefit by a much more intimate um, 
I mean, for instance, we, we think of even Bohem as, as being somewhat grand because of that second act. It's really just 15 minutes of the opera that take place in a, a cafe on Christmas Eve in Paris. But the rest of the, the show is quite, quite intimate. And yeah. I was involved in a production of it this past summer at the Crested Butte Festival in Colorado, which is a, um, a program for very young um, artists. And we did it in a, a really small Spiegel tent with a reduced orchestra and people sitting around mm -hmm. in their booths eating and drinking. And um, it was an amazing experience, first of all, to see Bohème cast with people who are the age that those characters are supposed to be and look like what they might really have looked like. You know, that was... Uh, but also, you know, it's really weird to have the cramped garret of Bohemians spread out on the Metropolitan Opera stage. Right. It looks like a Soho wow. loft, you mm -hmm. know? It's different, you know, it's... It's nuanced. Because their experience, yeah. those characters are, are supposed to be experiencing, you know, penury and, and cold and want yeah. and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Well, um, and I think, I think that's very astute because so much of what makes opera so cool is like the magic of the human instrument. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, it just, it's, I know that the whole point is that it can carry across an orchestra in that big a space, but if you don't know that they're unamplified and you've never experienced opera singing up close, mm -hmm. then you don't quite understand the magic of what it means for someone to be able to do that. super musical family, right? Well, yes and no. Um, you know, my mother uh, did study music professionally. You know, she, she studied music. She was in the first graduating class of music at art high school here in New York. Oh, that's so and then cool. she went on to NYU. I didn't realize you were from New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, that's part of how I got into opera, actually. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, uh, my mother, though, uh, she never practiced classical music, though she had training in it, she mm. went into, she was kind of a Borscht performer, did, <laughs> did pop music nice. and stand-up, you know. Oh, that's great. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and then and my grandmother, her mother was incredibly, deeply, deeply in love with and interested in music of all kinds, mm. and was the person who really supported my interest in, in the arts and particularly in music and opera, you know. Because my mother didn't so much. It was it was a little bit of a, you know, don't steal my but thunder kind of the, situation. You know? What was the, I mean, the what was your exposure? Okay. What was the spark? How did you see it, right? Like, I remember my community theater. I remember mm -hmm. watching Yentl with Barbara Streisand. Like, what, wow. was your, wow. what was your thing? Well, okay, here, here's the thing, is that I really didn't know anything about opera when I was very, very young, um, you know, past the, the kind of parodies of it that you saw mm -hmm. in cartoons, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm the Bob of Seville, you know, and <laughs> oh, Brunhilde, I love you so, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was sort really of too. presented yeah. as something silly, and that's kind of what you thought. Mm -hmm. Then, when I was seven years old, 
I discovered a stash of um, 45 RPM singles. And I don't know if any, if you or any of your listeners will remember such a thing. <laughs> Somebody will. Right? <laughs> but they were, you know, if you, way back in the Ice Age, you know, when we had, uh, you know, what we called records. Um, we know what records are. <laughs> That's what I say. My parents say things like that all the time. Like, I know what records are. You had a record player. They're cool again. There I, are. I know they I are. want yeah. one. I know they are, yeah. <laughs> well, but but so there were the big, you know, <clears throat> LPs, and then mm. there were the small 45 RPMs, mm. which uh, had, were singles, one song or selection on each side. And um, one of the major classical labels then was RCA Victor, and their their classical imprint was called Red Seal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the LPs were black, opaque vinyl, like like you imagine records to be, mm-hmm. with a red seal on it. However, the 40, 45 RPMs were made of red transparent vinyl, Ooh. not black, not opaque, but red transparent yeah. vinyl. That's, That's how you make opera accessible. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> well, yeah. So as a seven-year-old kid, I saw these, um, these, these records that had belonged to my grandfather, um, and they, there were two of them, two singles, and uh, I, it's like I had to hear what a red transparent vinyl recording sounded like. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's what it was all about. Right. And it so happened that those two singles were the tenor Mario Lanza, you know, the great sort of movie star operatic tenor. Mm-hmm. And I played them without having any preconceived notions or prejudices, because uh, I knew nothing about, about opera. Mm-hmm. But I heard this voice singing um, a couple really of, of kind of Italian crossover. It was like Martinata and Granada, which is Spanish, and O Sole Mio. And I, it just knocked me out. I just had never heard anything like this. I was immediately just super excited by that sound and by the language. And, and I, I swear from that moment, it was like I just knew this in some way, shape, or form was going to be my life's path. Mm. I mean, really, it was that clear. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, and I I just literally ever since then, I've just followed that. Mm -hmm. And on that path, you know, the only thing that's ever been, like, clear to me in my life is that path. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's taken some twists and turns along the way and maybe some, uh, you know, has inspired me to make some decisions that, a lot of people thought were dumb and risky, but, um, you know, that's it. That's what I've done. And, and I never looked back and I have never regretted it for a moment. Um, I, I just feel like I was born to follow that path and I was mm-hmm. so incredibly fortunate to find it at such an early age. Yeah. So that brings me to another question I have for you, which is that you are one of the only full-time professional dramaturgs that I know. In opera. Period. Oh, really? Honestly, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the dramaturgs I know who are full-time in theater have to be affiliated with a theater Mm -hmm. company Mm -hmm. that makes it a point to have dramaturgs. And even then, sometimes, like actors, they have to do other work on the side or edit people's stuff in order to make ends meet. 
Um, and I think it's an amazing thing when you're at the top of your field and you know more about this truly than anyone. I've gone to your talks and stuff. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that that speaks to, like, the general state of the arts a little bit, that being full-time in something like, which, in a position that people frequently are like, you don't need a dramaturg oh, in theater, yeah. they do that mm. too. Oh, yeah. Um, it's the, you're the most expendable person. Yeah, but I want, I want to hear so you. So when, when, when the general director is cutting the budget, you're the first one to go. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm curious to hear, like, what do you think that says about, like, the temperature of the arts in America? And I know that you work in Europe as well, like, versus in Europe. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you see that playing out, basically? Well, um... You know, uh, certainly in the German-speaking countries, dramaturgs are considered absolutely essential. Every opera company of whatever size, even the mm -hmm. ones, the municipal ones of smaller towns in Germany, mm -hmm. has usually a staff of dramaturgs. I spent last... Wow. They should That's have like a, like a gaggle of whatever. Yes. You know, like a a something of, right. of dramaturgs. Right. A, a, um, it has to be something... A like pride a, of dramaturgs. A pride of dramaturgs. <laughs> I love that. I love Although that. gaggle is good too, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I spent last Christmas holidays in Berlin. A friend of mine was, was performing um, at Deutsche Oper Berlin, and I have a lot of friends that were there. Uh, and I saw operas at all three, yeah, three major opera companies in Berlin, three world-class wow. major opera companies. And I saw performances in all of them. But the thing that really knocked me out is each of those places has a staff of about five dramaturgs, including a chief dramaturg and a departmental, mm -hmm. um, you know, administrative assistant and so on. And, you know, there are more full-time opera dramaturgs in the city of Berlin than there are in this entire country. <laughs> so that says something about um, operatic mm. culture here and there. One of the major things it says, of course, is that Germany has a very strong tradition of government support for the arts, oh. which many European countries have had. And it, it's slipping. They're getting very nervous about it. They're coming mm. to... They're hiring American development people to uh, teach them how to beg. No. You know? no. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's happening all over, um, even in Germany, which has mm. been really the, the bulwark of state support for opera, which has allowed um, German opera houses to do some very adventurous uh, mm. kinds of work. When you say adventurous work, do you mean new operas? Do you mean operas that aren't done very often? Well, what I mean by adventurous work is both of those things and also, um, you know, commissioning of mm -hmm. new operas, mm -hmm. which is something I, I also wanted to talk about. But also the other part of that is really interesting, thoughtful, progressive productions of standard mm -hmm. repertory and older repertory. Yeah. Which all seems which essential is, to like, keeping opera yeah. accessible. Corey is working on helping dramaturg a Rufus Wainwright opera that uses wow. his music and I think he's writing music you know he's, he's which in I love him yeah. as an artist oh he's mm -hmm. wonderful but I'm curious to hear you talk about what that's like given that it's quote accessible unquote mm -hmm. and to hear about what it means to be commissioning new opera and your mission right mm -hmm. yeah so very much um you know a part of what I do more and more actually is has been to be involved in the uh 
in the development of new operas. One of the things that I've been doing for the past 10 years is um, I've been a faculty member in an organization here in New York called American Lyric Theater, which is founded and run by an absolute visionary named Lawrence Edelson. And this is a, the flagship program of ALT is a, a fellowship for emerging composers and librettists. And we've been accepting on a three-year cycle. Every three years, we take in a class of four composers and four librettists through very competitive application. And it's, um, they get a free ride and very intensive training and hands-on experience in creating new opera with, uh, there's classroom teaching that I do and there's also mentorship. More recently, I'd say in the last three or four years, uh, being asked to do a lot of freelance work for various companies on the development of individual operatic projects. I've been doing work for the Beth, uh, Beth Morrison projects, which um, has been producing very cutting edge kind of crossovery works um, on more on the avant-garde side. So one of the things that I am most happily working on now is this opera by Rufus Wainwright, commissioned by Canadian Opera mm -hmm. uh, up in Toronto, which is a great company run by another great visionary, Alexander Neef. And uh, he asked Rufus uh, to, to write an opera, and Rufus has chosen the subject. Uh, it's based on the life of the uh, Roman Emperor Hadrian. And it's, it's actually, it has a lot of contemporary resonance to it. Mm -hmm. And the thing that a lot of people may not know about Rufus, besides the fact that he's just a love and one of the easiest people to work with, of, <laughs> and he really is. He's just a wonderful person, not a mean bone in his body. Uh, generous. Anyway. I knew it. Yeah, he is. He's really. He, I think a lot of people know that he likes opera. He goes to opera, but I have been flabbergasted by his knowledge, his intimate knowledge of a lot of opera repertory. He knows Verdi and Berlioz chapter and verse, um, and there, I would say those two composers are his biggest influences in his own writing of operatic music. Now, who are your favorite non-opera mus musicians, like folk or pop or rock? Do you have well, any of those? Yeah, actually, well, you know, I sort of have um, a, a group, you know, that sort of from my childhood and from my growing mm. up when I was in, you know, high school and college and stuff that I was a real fan, am or remain a real fan of the sort of folk rock singer songwriter types like Joni Mitchell and yeah. Joan Baez and, um, you know, Judy Collins. Mm -hmm. I love Simon and Garfunkel, mm -hmm. uh, James Taylor, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Peter, mm -hmm. Paul and Mary, you know, I was, <laughs> these days I really like, for instance, Bjork because mm -hmm. I find her music, um, you know, I like the contemporary non-classical types of, of music and musicians that are a little more, I suppose you'd say they're a little more like classical music because they're a little more complex. There's kind of more to bite into, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. and I, that's one of the reasons I like Rufus's work as well. Oh, God. And Rufus is, is also very eclectic. There's lots of different influences. He, 
comes from the, the folk rock kind of tradition too, because his, his parents were both part of that, Loudon Wainwright III and uh, Kate McGarrigle. I wanted to talk to, if I could, about yeah. two other particular pieces that I've, I've worked on, new pieces of that course. have recently yes. had their premieres, which I'm really excited about, because mm -hmm. I think they point to uh, a future a bright future for new opera. Mm -hmm. and, and one is um, an opera called Breaking the Waves, which has recently premiered at Opera Philadelphia. It's based on the Lars von Trier film from the 90s. Mm -hmm. And um, the composer is this wonderful young woman, Missy Mazzoli. And the librettist is a guy called Royce Vavrick, who's a very busy Canadian librettist who's been resident in New York for a long time and was actually one of my first students at American Lyric Theater. Mm, that's awesome. And he's doing incredibly well now and is just a, a work of such in, amazingly high quality mm -hmm. and it's already starting to make the rounds. It's going to be seen in New York at the Prototype Festival in January. Oh. So everybody yeah, get your tickets. Go. It's yeah. really great drama. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, it's, it's just... It's wonderful. And then another um, opera that actually emerged from American Lyric Theater, uh, it was one of our commissions and had a premiere at Opera Saratoga uh, summer 2015, is, is called The Long Walk, mm -hmm. based on the memoir, the very, very recent memoir of a man called Brian Kastner, who was uh, part of one of those bomb diffusing teams that the American military sends to, he was in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's about his uh, readjustment into civilian life. Yeah, and wow. the, you know, he had a traumatic brain injury and didn't mm -hmm. realize it and thought he was going crazy. And, you know, it, it's sort of part flashbacks and part his present life mm -hmm. with his family. and is just an incredibly powerful work. And uh, the composer, um, Jeremy Howard Beck, he uses, uh, along with a traditional chamber orchestra, um, electric guitar to, um, to signify imbalanced mental states. It's kind mm -hmm. of another sound world mm -hmm. when the character Brian goes mm -hmm. off into what he calls the crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's got a wonderful librettist by um, Stephanie Fleischman, who's one of the best young opera librettists coming up. It sounds like the story is really well, well tailored to this, to, to opera. I think, you know, if you go back to the origin of opera in the, the turn, like, you know, we're, we're going from the birth of opera is like around 1598 in mm -hmm. Florence, uh, among a, a, a group of, of you know, highly educated amateurs, noblemen with time on their hands, or nobles, I should say, because there were some women involved as well, um, who, that was during, of course, the Renaissance, and what mm -hmm. they were seeking to rebirth were the classical arts, and mm -hmm. it was their attempt to rebirth um, ancient classical drama, mm -hmm. uh, which gave birth to opera, you know, because mm -hmm. they th what they thought they were doing was something like the Greek um, yeah, right, yes, exactly, yes. and the very stylized, what we mm. knew about 
uh, ancient uh, theater being very stylized in movement and mm -hmm. speech and projecting in the arenas and so on. Mm -hmm. So that is what gave birth to opera. The reason I digress to that is, is just to say uh, that I, I think ever since then, uh, people have decided to make a story into an opera when there was something about it that they felt needed to be kicked up a notch, something mm -hmm. that was so... What can't be said should be sung. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That emotions that somehow are so big and deep mm -hmm. or something that they felt like they needed to express that in song. Mm -hmm. And I think that remains true today. And you look at, at pieces like the Long Walk and Breaking the Waves, and these are contemporary stories, but ones that are just larger than life in some way. So, our podcast is called Be a Good Little Girl, um, <laughs> and it's of course meant ironically. Yeah. Um, oh, really? On <laughs> oh, I never would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> We're clearly playing on the expectations that are foisted upon women and girls and females oh. of all kinds, um, or frankly, anyone who, you know, feels like they experience that sense of other in whatever way. So are you super conscious of your, your girlness? Oh, absolutely. As you were? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. In certain ways, I think it's part of what has made me, you know, uh, a successful dramaturg. Certainly in the room... Uh, you know, when it comes to developing new opera, because I think, um, you know, you have to be part of the whole thing is the inner game of tennis. You have to not only be a very, very uh, skilled theatrical and musical professional, but you really, all of that is for naught if you don't have the kind of interpersonal skills to, mm -hmm. I mean, I've worked with some teams that, Oh God! You just wanted to kill yourself mm. because, you know, it, the the level of disharmony was, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, mm -hmm. just fighting and stuff like that. And yeah. you know, you have to be able to kind of handle that and be like a UN diplomat. <laughs> and then some collaborations, like the two that I just mentioned, Long mm. Walk and Breaking the Waves, were two of the most harmonious and beautiful creative experiences mm. ever. I think it's part of why they're as good as they are. But but anyway. I think but, that's really interesting, though, because it's not just the knowledge that you have or the skill that you have. It's also this interpersonal, mm -hmm. this instinct and this knowledge of when to talk and when to listen. Mm -hmm. That's as much a part of it as the education that you have. And that's a skill that I'm sure I know that many men have, but I think it is kind of a, a very if I hate to say it, it's to me a very feminine kind of a skill because mm -hmm. we're all kind of trained to listen yep. <laughs> more, I think, mm -hmm. you know, and that can be a virtue. Um, and then the challenging part of it, you know, uh, at least for me in developing in that aspect of my work has been to learn when and how to speak up. You know, Absolutely. I think that's incredible because I think women are frequently 
societally taught to listen. There was a mm-hmm. whole think piece mm-hmm. about this from Vox about Hillary Clinton, about how one of her greatest strengths is that she listens. I remember her listening is, tours. <laughs> which is great, but I'm also like, no one is talking about that with, with the male candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's, you know, there are lots of studies about this, that girls are taught to be perfect and boys are taught to be brave at a mm-hmm. young age, that boys are taught to go hurt themselves and fall and <laughs> do whatever mm-hmm. it is they need to do, mm-hmm. whereas girls, y- you know, it's don't get that dirty and use oh, your indoor God, voice yeah. and mm-hmm. be a good little girl. Basically. I just remember every, that's people saying to me, I was doing this Saturday other thing, that's not ladylike. And I just remember thinking, so, like, who wants to be ladylike? <laughs> really? Yeah. I used to, like, what's that? Yeah. You know? I also think, like, what's the point of all that listening if you never use Respond. it? If you never get to speak up? Well, one of the things, talk about be a good little girl, uh, one thing that I have experienced in other aspects of my work was um, in several situations um, in which I... Uh, reported directly to a leader who was male, um, who was frankly clearly threatened by my knowledge. Being a dramaturg, you're presumably hired uh, because you have because you have a lot of knowledge, knowledge and right. you know what to do with it, mm-hmm. and you're kind of hired to be the best informed person in the room at any given point, mm-hmm. no matter whether you're talking about the program book or a new opera or a new production or education programs or super titles, you know, mm-hmm. all of which are part of the job. Um, but ironically, sometimes that really, uh, you know, makes you butt heads with mm. with people you you're perceived as threatening somehow mm. in a way that I'm sorry I just don't feel the dynamic would be the same if it was coming from a man mm. right because uh, and that was a big part of what we were working on with our mission and our mantra is this idea of how do we allow girls women anyone to take up space uh-huh. and I think mm. when when someone feels threatened by you you have you have to diminish. Otherwise, if you take up space, it's seen as an aggressive act all of right. a sudden. Like Hillary. Um, you yes. know, exactly. It's like, why oh, Why do you hate her? Oh, I just hate her. She's a bitch. All right. Would she be a bitch if she was a man behaving exactly mm-hmm. the same way? And I, frankly, I'm sure we've all been in that position at one time or another. But when, you're, when you've got a job and it's your responsibility to hold up the integrity of a piece or a... Mm-hmm. a creative team or a company, mm-hmm. that's your job. And no matter who it puts you in conflict with, doesn't have mm-hmm. to be ugly, not at all. But, you know, you're there to to do that job. Even beyond the, um, the, the, the gender issues that, um, you know, you might come against, it's like, as a dramaturg, you might have information that goes against what the director's oh, choice, gosh. what he wants, you know, oh, or she wants, you know, and that's a, that's hard information to give. But you know that, like, for the good of the piece as a whole, you have to share that. Uh-huh. And that's happened to me many times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually had an experience one once. This is uh, in actually my. The first year I was the staff dramaturg at New York City Opera, mm-hmm. so I was like a really new kid on the block, and I was pr- pretty young at the time as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, we had uh, brought in a production 
um, of Orfeo, Gluck Orfeo from English National Opera, actually. Um, and it turns out that the moment of Eurydice's, um, you know, death mm -hmm. was staged wrong because it's very, very clear in the music where mm -hmm. that occurs. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that to the director of productions, who at that time was my boss, and he said, oh, well, okay, well, you need to go tell the director. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah, and this was literally, you know, one of my first months on the job, and, you know, that was a real baptism by fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, so what happened? Did they end up changing it? Yeah. Good. Well, I said, you just every music critic is going to know that. You know, the thing is, in, in opera, the composer is every bit as much, if not more, the dramatist mm -hmm. than the librettist. And, you know, very often you can... You know, and, and I'm, this is in theater too. Uh, you can say something in words, and the music or the subtext mm -hmm. can be exactly the opposite all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And that sort of thing has happened a lot. You know, um, working on productions mm -hmm. in which a director, in the case of opera, may not speak the language in which the opera is written, and sometimes you have to say, well. You know, uh, Onegin says mm -hmm. in this scene, who's the woman over there in the red beret talking to the Spanish ambassador? And more often than not, she's not doing either in the opera. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing, I mean, you know. Does he really say she has a red beret? Yeah. That's, it's that. famous. You know, it's one of the famous details in Eugene Onegin. I Pushkin. have a red beret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in the Pushkin where, you know, anybody Russian-speaking, not only they're going to understand that, but they're, they're going to know it's that. It's famous, yeah. yeah it's mean, not just that. because, oh, you know, I'm the accuracy police. I'm the, mm. You know, I don't look at it like that. But I look at Would it you like, say Anagin is one of your favorites? Oh, absolutely. Why is Anagin, what is Anagin about? Why is it one of your favorite operas? Oh, gosh. Well, it's, first of all, the music is so incredibly beautiful, and the characters are just so deep. Um, and it's interesting because, of course, it's sort of like the, the, in a way, you could probably say the number one national work of Russian literature. Yeah, my parents can quote, yeah. like, it by heart, yeah. basically top to bottom. And it's it's a truly, truly great work of literature. And what's interesting is that Tchaikovsky, who mainly adapted the libretto himself, um, almost a hundred percent of the libretto is verbatim yep. Pushkin, wow. which absolutely is in its that. rhyming verse is not doing it justice. It's in oh, yeah. a complete. It's in a rhyme scheme that doesn't exist in English, but yeah. it just flows. And somehow he manages to set it to some of the yeah. most beautiful music in the world. Absolutely. And, and to come back to something we talked about, it's truly completely accessible. I almost mm, think it's yeah. more accessible than Bohem. Like that I do. should be. Yeah. The equivalent mm -hmm. of Boam. It's about, in a way, it's about dumb, over-romantic teenagers, <laughs> you know, who grow up uh, uh, and learn a lot of lessons the hard way. Um, but but it's also, so the thing about it is that it's the entire libretto, except for Prince Kudemian's aria, is, um, is Pushkin. But it's only you know, it's not nearly the entire novel and verse. So it, it's very carefully chosen chunks uh, of it. And what Tchaikovsky does, actually, is he takes away this ironic, satirical frame 
of the novel, which is told by a narrator. And when you do that, even though it's all verbatim Pushkin, it changes the feeling of the story so much. Mm -hmm. You're taking away the lens, you're right. looking right in on these characters, and the, the satire layer of it is gone, and it becomes this really quite heart-rending. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and also for me, another reason why I love it so much if it's for personal reasons. I find the character of Tatiana, oh, well, she's one of the great characters in literature, but it, it's a woman who is bookish and thoughtful as a young girl and is kind of looked on as an oddball for that. But, uh, you know, it's like the ugly duckling turning into the swan. And mm -hmm. then in the last scene, she's this absolutely gorgeous, poised, literally princess that everyone admires so so if you would recommend someone go listen to an opera okay. what would it be yeah, yeah what, what, it what be? should your first experience be well i mean i would for me onegin is right up there because the music mm. is and i hate to word, use this word again accessible and what i mean by accessible it's very important for me to define what i mean yeah. by that it does not mean let's dumb it down accessible means something that in and of itself has su such a kind of a universality to it or mm. such a beauty to it that, you know, if it's presented well, if it's done mm. well, there's no way that it's not going to touch you on some level. Mm. Yeah. And what I feel about opera or any great theater or visual art or literature is that, um, you know, accessibility is literally making it available mm -hmm. to everyone. a lot of people, yeah. to everyone, uh, in a form that's presented as well as it can possibly be. Um, but anyway, uh, as far as first operas go, I think Onegin is right up there because the story is so appealing and simple mm -hmm. and uh, direct, and the music is so, so beautiful. Similarly, and it's great to listen to in oh, winter too. Oh um, yeah, like when it's cold outside because it's mm -hmm. Russian. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, and then similarly, I think some of Puccini's operas also, you know, very mm. traditionally, everyone says, "Oh, well, go see Bohème or Butterfly," and those are good. Hansel and Gretel is a great mm. opera because it has a lot of kind of familiar tunes, and it's oh. really uh, an incredibly sophisticated structure it's like mm -hmm. a mini Wagner opera you know built of motifs and very sophisticated orchestration yet the musical material is all folk and folk-like tunes mm -hmm. Mozart I think oh. is pretty accessible oh. like La Nozze di Figaro and Don Giovanni like those are pretty mm -hmm. I mean they're high farce but mm -hmm. the, the music is also very honest and mm -hmm. pure and, and beautiful you can mm -hmm. A lot of Mozart operas, if you go, you'll go, oh, I do know, I know that. I know that. Mm -hmm. I know that. You'll recognize things that you didn't even know. You know what I have found, and this may seem unusual, but a lot of younger audiences really, really respond strongly to Wozzeck. And the opera is this very compact, it's a short opera, and it's just, there's not an ounce of fat on it. Mm. And it's one of the most brilliantly designed operas and and quite beautiful even though it's it's 12 tone um alban berg the composer used tone rows that are very friendly so mm -hmm. it has a less kind of 
scary sound to it than a lot of other music of the second Viennese. So when you go home at the end of the day or wake up in the morning, do you you listen to music and do you listen to opera? And what do you listen to? Well, you know what? The thing is, is that uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I work so much, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like my work days are, are tend to be quite long, mm-hmm. and I tend to work on weekends. I tend to travel a lot for work. So I'm hearing music a lot in my days. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, what, hap- what happens to me is that when I'm in transit or when I get up in the morning or I'm doing chores and going to, I've got like a soundtrack going on yeah. in my head. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's funny, I think about this a lot. I've always had this, I've got some kind of weird inner DJ, mm-hmm. and I wish I knew, like, what their algorithm was. <laughs> because I will get up in the morning thinking about a piece of music, and I'm just thinking, why is that music going through my head? Yeah. And it might have some weird connection to something I'm working on, mm-hmm. or something, you know, if somebody says a phrase that, you know, Oh, you go into a Mozart opera where somebody sings that phrase. Mm. You know, who knows? But it's almost like I have my own inner soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, in terms of when I like deliberately want to relax or mm. something like that and put on some music, I love world music. I love to listen to like, in a way, I love to listen to the kinds of music that I know least about, so mm. I can turn off the critical yeah. thing that I, I can that never sense. turn off for most music. I listen to a lot of Asian music, Celtic music, um, mm. you know, stuff like that. Um, and then I also, I love to listen to like, you know, corny old Italian, you know, sort of like, oh, sole mio, Mario Lanza. <laughs> folk, folk, yeah. Yeah, folkish pop, mm. that kind of stuff. I really like that a lot. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, find, I find that to be very interesting, the mm. idea of, how we consume music because so many times especially with like our generation I meet people who are like I love music but what they mean is they like listening to recorded music on their iPhones when they're walking around mm-hmm. which is a completely acceptable way to consume music I love music too but I almost never I have no music on my iPhone because mm-hmm. I don't listen to it as a background thing. I like no. to watch someone sing. I like yeah. to see an opera. I like I like good musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. like, I don't really consume it in that way. Mm-hmm. And it, so I think it's, it's the thing we're talking about where music is not a monolith. Like rec- mm-hmm. there's recorded music and there's live music and there's all sorts of different ways of consuming it. And I think the majority of consumption now is recorded music as background. You know, it blows my mind. So often you see like in offices or whatever, people with their headphones on While sitting and typing and working. I I don't know. I could mm. never do that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm in awe of how you can even do that. Yeah. I have one more one more question. Yeah. It's a and it's slightly political, but I'm curious. Um because I have I struggle still since November 9th. <sighs> Uh, waking up in the morning, getting up and being the person that I want to be and doing the things I want to do in this world. <laughs> that, completely honest, that's like where I'm, I'm starting from every day. And I am very curious. It feels like 
everything has changed and at the same time nothing has changed. Um, and I just wonder if anything has changed for you and the way you approach your work and the way that you approach your life. Well, you know, this past election uh, was, to say it was a wake-up call is an understatement. It was a trauma, really. You know, there are so many things which in my lifetime have progressed so far, women's rights, gay rights, civil rights, and it, they have come a long way, but there's still such a long way to go in all of those and more, you know. You know, this, this current political situation, uh, we can't sit back and be comfortable and accept it as normal. It's not even like when George W. Bush was elected, which a lot of people were unhappy with and made changes that a lot of people weren't happy with too, but um, this is so not normal. We can't accept it as the new normal. And I feel that um, everyone who feels this way, uh, we have a very special mission, a very special task in the coming years of being awake and aware and attentive and ready to respond when things like basic human rights um, are threatened in any way. Uh, I think we have to be, we should be, and I hate to say should to people, but I think it behooves us to, uh, to be more activist, as activist as our lives um, permit, mm -hmm. whether it's signing petitions or marching or volunteering or running for office or I don't know what, you know, that and also particularly as a woman, I think many women probably agree, it was very hard not to take the results of this past election as personally. somehow, personally, as, mm -hmm. as somehow a very personal slap, a very personal rebuke of like, oh, so, so you think you're all that, well, mm -hmm. take that, you know, you're not as, don't be so uppity, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and that was a shock and that was uh, a real sadness and disillusionment for me. I mean, obviously as artists, everything that happens around us and everything that goes on inside of us should uh, manifest in the art that we create. But I think this in, in a particularly special way, I think historically the arts have lent voice to a lot of important political thought and humanistic thought. And, and this is a time, you know, I think it's a real call to action for mm. artists. And I can't say at this point exactly what forms that will take for me personally. I think it's a pretty organic thing, but mm. I think if all of us who are very conscious and awake will find it manifesting in our art and we need to we really need to support that support each other mm -hmm. you know thanks Chloe. oh Thank it's been so super much, fun I, super fun i feel like i could talk to you for hours well, well it was amazing Vice versa. Yeah. <laughs>